BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Steve Forbes, like Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, Nikola Tesla. The last name of Steve Forbes has become disembodied and come to represent an industry. He's the chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media, and for decades has been one of the most powerful and influential figures in all of publishing, with only brief absences from his post at Forbes to run for president of the United States in both 1996 and 2000. He's also the author of several books, including his latest, Inflation, what it is, why it's bad, and how to fix it. Steve, it's a real honor to have you here. Thanks for coming in today. Well, Doug, uh, good to be with you. Thank you. And uh, your drink and, of and choice. I'm, I'm delighted you have a copy of the book, which meant somebody bought it. So yeah, I bought it. I've made some happy. underlines and some dog ears and things. Uh, it was a terrific book, which I, I really am looking forward to speaking with you about. But Thank uh, you. The, the first order of business, of course, is your drink selection today is Pilsner. Yes. Which we have here and are chilled. Um, would you like it in a glass? Uh, why not? We're okay. going to be it's holiday time, so. We'll... And we've we've got the glasses here for that reason. Oh, it looks smells like, good. Looks like you know how to pour. <laughs> <laughs> there you are. Thank you, sir. Open the other one here. Okay. Now, this is like a... We haven't had beer on the show before. This is a very cozy way to do it. Feels like we're at a pub. <laughs> Great. Well, cheers. Thank, Thank you. you. And uh, hope the IRS doesn't watch this in in-kind income or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I... I've uh, enjoyed doing my homework on a, of course, I know who you are, and we've actually briefly met a, a few times, but I really enjoyed doing a deeper dive on your history. Your grandfather, B.C. Forbes, was born in Scotland in 1880, Right, made it to the U.S. by 1904, and in less than 10 years was the business editor for a New York publication of William Randolph Hearst. Well, that's right. Uh, my grandfather, from a young age, he was six of 10 children, and he always wanted to be a business writer. And uh, so he uh, taught himself what they used to call shorthand at a young age, where you could write a lot down before recorders and the like. Mm -hmm. And uh, he eventually went uh, to South Africa to cover the Boer War, 
was there for the founding of a paper uh, since deceased, uh, the Rand Daily Mail. And uh, the editor, Edgar Wallace, uh, loved to uh, imbibe uh, the equivalent of Pilsner. Mm -hmm. And so my grandfather ended up writing a lot of his editorials for, for, for the paper. And so he wanted a bigger canvas, so he came over to New York in 1904. Uh, he gets off the boat and starts knocking on doors to get a job, and no one would hire him. So he f exhibited the first example of entrepreneurship that we celebrate at Forbes to this day. He went to an editor and said, I'll work for you for free for a few weeks, show you my worth, and I trust that if I uh, live up to what I should be, uh, you'll hire me. Now, my grandfather had no idea whether the editor would just take his free labor and then toss him out, but he got the job. But he was so full of energy and ambition that he went to another editor, used a different name, and got a job there. And probably one of his happiest moments was when the two editors got into an argument as to who had the best business reporter. It was my grandfather. <laughs> and uh, he uh, was an ambitious man, obviously, and decided instead of just writing about uh, entrepreneurs and business people, he decided he would uh, go into business himself. And mm -hmm. so uh, years later, 1917, not a good time, World War I, mm -hmm. he uh, started Forbes magazine. And in those days, often magazines were named after real people, Scribner's and, and the like, mm -hmm. and uh, Harper's. And uh, so uh, he, he, he was off and running. And uh, we learned growing up that uh, business is like a garden. Uh, you have to tend to it. Uh, the storms can come along, which undo everything you think you've done. During the 20s, uh, Forbes did very well. And in 1928, you mentioned my grandfather was a, uh, a publication in New York before he started Forbes. Mm -hmm. He was a writer for the Hearst Papers, William mm -hmm. Randolph Hearst, who became the uh, character in Citizen yeah, Kane. Citizen Kane, right. Uh, uh, he was. Uh, he did a syndicated column. He continued it. Hearst allowed him to do it even after he started Forbes. Oh, he's doing both. At, at he's doing both. Years. And uh, in the late twenties, Hearst offered to buy Forbes, buy the magazine for the equivalent of uh, millions of dollars. My grandfather proudly turned the offer down. Mm -hmm. Four years later, the company was bankrupt in all but name with the Great Depression. And the way he kept it going was. And Hearst was struggling too through the Hearst, Great Depression. Hearst uh, had uh, they had to really boot them out in the late thirties mm -hmm. uh, from the day-to-day -day operations, the bankers. But uh, my grandfather uh, survived by uh, uh, doing a lot of freelance and the syndicated writing. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, he didn't cash his own checks. He would uh, pay himself, but put the check in a safe because there wasn't enough cash in the bank to mm -hmm. cover it. And uh, he also instituted what the employees called Scotch Week. Every fourth week, you didn't get paid. It was a 25% pay cut. And in those days, people were just grateful to have a job during those desperate times. Mm -hmm. And one of my grandfather's other proud moments was years later, when things recovered, he got to cash those checks. But uh, it was good uh, growing up to learn. Uh, mm -hmm. As my father liked to say, if you think you've arrived, you're ready to be shown the door. Things don't stay the same in a dynamic free market. Those are great values. I, I, it's refreshing to hear values like that and hear those kind of stories. I feel like we need to, to hear that more. But it, it, the company passed to your father, Malcolm Forbes, who was a decorated World War II vet. Yes. And he successfully grew the business through the 50s, 60s, 
70s, and he seems like a larger-than-life kind of figure. He's collected Fabergé eggs, and what, what were those years like? Well, he uh, early on decided uh, the demarcation line between uh, personal life and business life was a false one, and he was going to uh, combine them all. Mm-hmm. And uh, so on the uh, eggs at the time, of Fabergé, great Russian jeweler, but uh, sort of uh, forgotten after the Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. And he bought my mother a little uh, egg for uh, Christmas once and decided uh, he liked it more than my mother did and uh, went to collect them. But he tied them in with Forbes. Uh, he did When he took over, did an ad campaign. Mm-hmm. Fabergé knew his business. Forbes knows yours. And uh, so to give a, a, a prestige to Forbes mm-hmm. that it didn't have at the time, and uh, then later on, he uh, ended up taking motorcycling. And the I remember re- reading about that. And he, I guess, didn't he have some big 70th or 60th birthday party? Oh, yes. And every Hollywood star was there. And well, he, uh, he flew them all he, in. He, where, where was the party? At his house in New Jersey. And okay. uh, he uh, got into motorcycling. Uh, his driver asked him for a loan. We did loans in those days to employees Mm -hmm. and uh, my father said what's it for and he said to buy a motorcycle my father said not giving you the money to kill yourself that's the dumbest thing you're just going to get in an accident and uh, this is crazy kid bought it anyway and uh, brought it over one Sunday to the house and Mm -hmm. my father was willing to try anything once so tried the motorcycle the next day he bought two of them (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it got worse, by the way, as he got older. In his 60s, he started to commute from New Jersey, which is about 50 miles from uh, New York office. Mm -hmm. He started to commute on a motorcycle. And then even worse, he started to drive on the streets with a motorcycle. So he had generational role reversal. The kid's telling the father, these things can be dangerous. You get hurt on them. And even though he had a couple of very serious motorcycle accidents, he uh, still still continued. still Still did it. And the ballooning. He read an article on ballooning and uh, went to uh, one Monday morning. Instead of going straight to work, he went to uh, went out of the way to a, a place in near Princeton that mm-hmm. had a hot air balloon. He was going to try it, and the rest of they say is history. Yeah. So the place that we that I last saw you, I think, was at the the uh, Forbes office on Fifth Avenue. I, I, yes. The muse- ground floor. There's so much great history of the company in that ground floor museum of the Fifth Avenue building. Is that all still there? Uh, we've moved since to uh, Jersey City mm-hmm. about uh, eight years ago. So uh, New York University, which is a large presence in that part of the city, uh, now owns the building. Mm-hmm. But we did have a great museum there. And what people liked about it, my father thought museums were stagnant. So he tried to have all the displays active, mm-hmm. uh, soldiers moving around and uh, yeah. really uh, get people involved instead of just looking at something on a shelf. Uh, so much rich history there. And I remember there's a funny story, actually, from that night involving your wife. Who, who uh, So I was there with my wife, and I can tell you roughly when this was because my wife was very pregnant with our first child, who's now 13 and a bit. So this would have been about 14 years ago. And we were in that stage of not knowing anything about what's about to happen to us in our lives. We're reading all the baby books, and they give all this crazy advice, and half the time the advice is conflicting, and we're telling your wife this. And she said to us, read nothing, go on instinct. And it was really calming advice to get and a reminder that, you know, we've been doing this as a species for <laughs> thousands of years. It's, it's going to work out. So yeah. we, uh, we always appreciated the, her, her advice there. 
Yeah, you now have three kids, right? That's right, three kids, uh, two boys and a girl. And uh, but uh, yes, uh, my my wife is very down to earth and practical on those things. And uh, so, and by the way, I shouldn't say this on the air. Uh, kids do become teenagers, and uh, it's a challenge. And so, you have to remind yourself of what. Lincoln said in a very different context, this too shall pass. But uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, we decided early on that we we're going to have one admonition, one prohibition, utterly unreasonable, but just to make have them understand we are the ultimate authority. And the thing we mm-hmm. chose was that until the age of 18, we had all girls, no pierced ears. And uh, they squawked and everything. Our friend, uh, nope, not until 18. You're 18, you can go do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so pick one thing just to show that, uh, yeah. You are the boss. You yeah. are the boss. Well, we're due. Maybe every 14 years we should get the four of us together and we'll get the next <laughs> phase of, of, of life hacks for how to, how to do this. Um, but there, I, I, I just remember that museum and, and loving what I was um, – seeing in there and so Forbes has been around for more than 100 years now it was yeah, in 1917 so we're 105 and uh, and has been evolving with the times in a in a very successful way and it's interesting because I you see you know predictions of things are going to go away from time to time and it, it often doesn't happen I remember reading this article not too long ago and the article was from the 1920s and it was predicting that Broadway and all theater was going to go away because of the advent of the silent movie. And decades later, the advent of the mass market paperback was supposed to spell the end of the hardcover. And of course, ebooks were supposed to be the end of all physical books. How, how has Forbes survived and thrived for 105 years and not wound up in the category of blockbuster video? Well, uh, the examples you cite are uh, very pertinent in the sense that, uh, yes, new things come along which disrupt the old. But the old often evolves with the new. Uh, One example was after World War II, the rise of television destroyed the movie industry, destroyed television. I mean, destroyed uh, movie theaters. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before uh, the TV, it was commonplace for people to go to the movies two to three times a week. Tens of thousands of theaters throughout the country. TV comes along and kaboom. You might go once every two weeks, so it uh, looked like that and Hollywood hated television. Then Hollywood finally woke up, TV needs content. We can make that content. Mm-hmm. And so instead what of- What was the initial content? Uh, just, it was soap operas, among mm-hmm. other things. Which is not that, very good. Uh, which, uh, which and, they, and they did serious things, like uh, having, uh, doing uh, live concerts and playhouse. Mm-hmm. They, it was a mishmash. Was there news? There was news. Mm-hmm. And it was evolving. They didn't know TV. They didn't know what to do with it. Like when the invention of radio mm-hmm. in the early 20s, which was seen as a miracle, the idea you could get voice through the air without wires was mm-hmm. wild. But what would you use it for? Was it a community bulletin board? Would you make uh, local announcements? What, what do you do with this thing? And finally, they quickly realized you can do shows. Mm-hmm. You can do drama. Uh, you can do news. And so uh, the networks rose up. And uh, the precursors of CBS and uh, NBC, what they used to call the blue and the red networks. Now, in our case, uh, we were upended, as was all print, by the rise of the Internet. Everything we had learned, you know, uh, the whole model went out the window from uh, the model that existed from the rise of the steam press, which meant you could have wide circulation publications printed cheaply. 
and uh, suddenly it, w- it was being destroyed uh, because uh, the, the the internet commoditizes everything. Mm-hmm. So uh, what what do you do? Well, first you try to remember what Peter Drucker, the late great management guru, whose books are occasionally still read in business school, mm-hmm. but he said every organization should remind itself. What is your purpose? What is your mission? What is it you are trying to do? And if you remind yourself of that, then the, if the means to do it change, then you uh, don't get quite as uh, caught up in, well, that's not the way you do it. What is your goal? Now, we went through a lot of change even before the Internet. Uh, we used to be a magazine that were, relied a lot on freelancers. And then we went, had to go to uh, in-house uh, staff. Mm-hmm. and make a change in content. We were one of the first to realize the importance of mutual funds in the 1950s. Uh, the creation of the Rich List in the early 1980s, which my father had to ram down the throat of the editorial department. That was his idea. That was that. his idea. He got the f- number 400 from mm-hmm. uh, Astor. This is Astor at the turn of the early 1900s. A fellow named August Belmont came up with the list of the 400 foremost New Yorkers. Why did she say 400? Don't know, but my father liked the number. <laughs> okay. So he said, Forbes 400, good alliteration, mm-hmm. 400 richest Americans. So he went to the idea with the editors, and they said, this is crazy. First, you're not going to get the information unless it's public, and uh, people are going to resist it, and you can't do it, blah, blah, blah. My father finally had enough, and he said, all right, you're not going to do it, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to hire a couple of editors, I'm going to steal a couple of yours, and we're going to do it on our own. Oh, okay, well, maybe we'll see if we can do it instead of being uh, mm-hmm. done in by the boss. Right. Well, they found out they could. You talk to competitors, you talk to bank, you, you start to get a network of information. And it worked and it was very, very successful. And one of the things that it showed was names that people didn't realize were doing big things in America. Sam Walton came to prominence because of that first rich list that this guy from Arkansas right. uh going against Kmart and Sears, the big giants of the day, uh, but because he managed inventory and managed information better than they did, mm-hmm. eventually beat them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Uh, it is amazing to scroll the list. I mean, I they're like 10 people from the Mars family on the list. You know, these Mars candy, and they've yeah. been on the list forever now, so it's sort of a known thing, but it's fun to go through the list and see which industries propel people yes, to and, these and, and, amazing uh, levels. Yes, you're, you're going to see fewer... Uh, Bitcoin. Uh, well, that's right. <laughs> yeah, if you're if, if, if right. cryptocurrency uh, kings uh, and queens uh, in the next mm-hmm. list, but when the internet came along, we did first. We did a we were, did a couple of things right. One is we put it in a separate building, and we put a separate staff, reported not to the usual chain of command, but to uh, my brother and to myself. The reason is human nature being what it is, organizations being what they are always focus on the task at hand. And we knew that if we left it with the print, they would end up killing it, not mm-hmm. out of malice, but just because it wasn't print. So we put it in a separate building, and uh, eventually uh, the baby grew into a bustling adolescent. Yeah. And then the time came to combine them, and that was pure hell. I bet. Culture clash. The uh, print people thought that the so-called journalism as they saw it on the website was garbage, peasants. The mm-hmm. website people felt the print reporters were lazy, who did one article and then patted themselves on the back for a week, dinner to Wells. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was very painful. It was very painful to see good people could not adjust to combining both worlds. 
and we eventually came through it. But one of the things, the other thing we did right early was we just just did not rely on the content of the magazine. We used outside sources of information. We went to companies and said, we'll slug it, but uh, you have some useful information as long as people know where it is from. Mm -hmm. Journalists do not have a monopoly of information. So uh, today we have over 2,500 contracted contributors to Forbes. We have over 100,000 pieces a year posted online. Mm -hmm. And so- uh, You guys have a stake in real clear politics too. You wanna- We did. Uh, did, okay. And, uh, but uh, we, we knew from the beginning it was gonna be a challenge in the sense that uh, the owner made it very clear, we could tell from the body line, he wanted to buy it back again mm. <laughs> when when Are you making investments around in media properties like that uh, example? We, we, we do some smaller ones, but uh, uh, we do try to do other things. Like one of the big things that we've done recently is 30 under 30. That is 30 people in 20 different categories under the age of 30 mm-hmm. doing great things. And it's now become a global phenomenon where people, young people, how do I get on the under 30? It's a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we had a meeting, a conference in Detroit, thousands of people showed up. We mm-hmm. Internationally, thousands show up. And uh, so it's, it's, it becomes, uh, people strive for it. I was talking mm-hmm. to a person who's head up a big firm, and I mentioned 30 under 30, he said, oh, my two sons, we're on 30 under 30 several years ago. They're in the sneaker business, Alpen mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And uh, so this, uh, so those kinds of innovations you have to constantly yeah. keep doing. And, I was wondering again, if there was also we, something intrinsic to the, the nature of business writing. I mean, going all the way back to your grandfather's day, that it's complex, substantive stuff. Like a, for a fashion magazine, it's very easy to have celebrity gossip and photos and picture of shoes, that all lends itself pretty well to Instagram. You don't need a magazine or a, or a deep site. Right. But business writing, I mean, looking at your book, Inflation, here, there are all kinds of section headings and signposts of, here's what I'm going to explain to you now. And then it's it just really lends itself to being laid out in print in a way to follow something as complex as the economy. You know, it, it there's a place for that in, in print and in a, in a longer form digital format. That's an important point. The, the, the web the internet will commoditize everything. You just cannot have a different name. You have to have something that is distinct, established as a brand, and uh, that people can trust. Because otherwise they'll just drive you into the ground, dollars to dimes to pennies. Mm -hmm. And so yes, you have to have something that uh, people feel they can turn to and get something that they need that helps them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I love the structure. I want to turn to your book, Inflation. and I love the structure of it, and even in the title, because you, you explain the history of inflation, you put it in the context of today, and then most importantly to me, you, you explain ways to fix the problem of inflation, what it, what it means to the reader. Well, um, that's right. And what is phenomenal, in some ways discouraging, is that for 3,000 plus years, we've had this disease, mm-hmm. and they keep making the same mistakes again. Yeah. And uh, so that's why we wanted to uh, explain some of the bad examples and the and some success stories of what you do when this thing hits mm-hmm. cuz it's not just rising prices it destroys the fabric of a society destroys trust destroys faith in the future uh has you looking for people doing bad things speculators who's causing this cuz we tend to think of our money as stable you know mm-hmm. we use it every day mm-hmm. uh, it's not like the stock market it's there mm-hmm. and uh we uh and so when it 
doesn't buy as much, we wonder what is going wrong? Who, who, who's causing this? So one of the things we point out for thousands of years, they've looked for scapegoats. In Roman yeah. times, it was Christians, mm-hmm. good for the lions, but not for curing inflation. Mm-hmm. In medieval times, it was witches. Yeah. In the 20s, with the German hyperinflation, it was uh, Jewish bankers and merchants. In the 70s, with Richard Nixon, it was greedy oil producers. Uh, mm-hmm. Today, it's uh, everybody uh, that uh, the Biden administration gets mad at because prices are going up. So uh, it's, it's Putin or something. That's one of the things I had not appreciated at all until I read your book. I always thought of inflation as this modern economic problem and even term and concept. But it, as you point out in the book, the it's an ancient problem. The ancient Romans, the emperors had identified the concept of inflation, had implemented fixes like price controls and wage controls, which are the same wrong-headed approaches that Richard Nixon did in the 1970s. 2,000 yep. years later, we're still coming at it the wrong way, even though it's been demonstrated over millennia that is not the fix. I was I was really blown away by the, the history of it. And even today, you see it playing out. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things we point out that sadly is uh, undergoing, we're undergoing now, is the idea that prosperity causes inflation. That if you want to wring inflation out of the economy, you have to slow it down. You hope for a soft landing, mm-hmm. which often ends up as a crash landing. So if you ever come upon a former Fed official piloting a plane, stay away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to have a bad end. And uh, we point out that monetary inflation is simply reducing the value of your currency, usually by creating too much of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also point out that there's non-monetary inflation which is when you get uh, events like a war, Ukraine, what that does to energy, food prices, and the like. Right, or, like a freezing uh, climate in Florida ruins all the oranges, and so orange so, juice so price prices goes prices up. Go yeah. up or, Temporarily. Or, or right. the, exactly. The, the lockdowns mm-hmm. severely disrupted price uh, supply chains because people didn't realize how complex the world economy had become. And then if you, just sh- if you shut it down, one, a lot of the parties are going to make other arrangements, so it's not like you can come back six months later and say, okay, switch, go back. No, airlines laid off pilots. Mm-hmm. Now they wish they hadn't done it. but uh, So it is very disruptive. And what the point we make on what you might call non-monetary inflation, the cure is leave the economy alone. It will cure itself. We'll get back to normal after these disruptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, after World War II, took a couple of years. Price controls came off, wage controls came off, rationing ended, and uh, it takes time to go from making uh, tanks to making uh, refrigerators. Mm -hmm. Well, for a couple of years, people were concerned about the cost of living going up, shortages, but it it smoothed out. The government didn't interrupt it. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. our government and some other governments are continuing to throw sand in the gears of the economy, you know, waging war against fossil fuels and the like. Mm -hmm. And and the idea of printing so much money. I mean, we're adding to the money supply and, and by enormous. Well, even amounts. before, as we touch in the book, even before COVID, before the pandemic, the Fed, for its own reasons, was undermining the value of the dollar. And uh, by and you saw it in the money supply numbers. You saw it in the gold price. Mm-hmm. So when the lockdowns came along, oh, you shut down the economy. They printed a lot of money. Congress passed a lot of uh, big multi-trillion dollar bills mm-hmm. and uh, legislation. And the Fed financed a lot of it by uh, simply printing money. And the way they do it, it's, it's uh, quite a process, is they uh, call up uh, a bond dealer, uh, say Goldman or somebody, and say, we want a billion dollars of uh, government bonds. Goldman says, fine. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they deliver the bonds, and how does the Fed pay for them? Well, they credit Goldman's bank account for a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Where does the money come from? Out of thin air. Yeah, it's even more simple than printing. There's not even a printing press with paper. Even, it's just the flick of a button. You, they, and it, you don't have is. to wait for manna from heaven. It just, it's just a few electrical impulses, electrical pulses, and boom, it's done. And this can pay for, you know, you have a $400 billion project. Here, let me uh, rub my little magic lamp, and the genie will, will make it appear for you. Yeah. And uh, one of the things the Fed has done, because they did, even after the pandemic started to wind down and the media crisis was over, they still printed tons of money mm-hmm. to help finance the government and its uh, projects. And uh, the way they uh, tried to uh, um, ameliorate it or prevent it from flooding the economy all at once was they would uh, print the money, in essence. Uh, Goldman got the billion, but then the Fed would borrow it back. Mm-hmm. So they'd buy a long-term bond and then borrow it back with short-term money, with a thing they call reverse repurchase agreements, reverse repos, if you want to use mm-hmm. it in a cocktail party. And uh, so they, it was like uh, pouring a bucket of water in one end of the pool and then removing the bucket of water at the other end. So today, if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, in February of 2021, this instrument called reverse repurchase agreements was zero. Today, it's over $2 trillion. Amazing. So this flood of currency into the monetary system undermines the value of the dollar. And your main point is that a healthy economy needs a stable currency. Well, yes. And one of the things you advocate to achieve that is the gold standard. Yeah. Well, uh, what what people should know better seem to overlook is that money measures value the way a scale measures weight or a ruler measures space Mm -hmm. or a clock measures time. And uh, when we don't float the clock, we don't uh, change the number of ounces in a pound when you go to the supermarket every day. The size of a gallon doesn't change. And money works best because it's a measure of value when it's fixed in value. So uh, it's like a claim check. You go to a restaurant, you check your coat. What do you get in return? Piece of plastic, piece of paper. Worthless in and of itself, but a claim on a real product. Mm -hmm. Or you buy a ticket to an event. Uh, Maybe a piece of paper few ellipses on your handheld, and that's it. But it's a claim on a real product or service. Mm-hmm. That's what money is, a real claim. And uh, so when you start to mess around with its value, then you you can't trust the information anymore. That, you know, measuring the value, that, that reminds me of a question I wanted to ask you, because I've been doing some research on John Rockefeller, and ah. I was trying to compare Rockefeller's net worth and buying power and sort of financial influence in his era to Elon Musk and Bezos of today. And so I picked 1913. 1913 was a fairly strong year for Rockefeller in his life. And his his net worth in 1913 was $900 million. And so I just tried, well, I'll inflation adjust that to present day and see what it looks like. And it turns out that's about 30x. So his $900 million in 1913 is about $27 billion today which is, of course, a ton of money, but only a fraction of Musk or Bezos. It seemed like that uh, wasn't the way to do it. No, you touched on something very important. You just don't adjust it for inflation, like the consumer price index Mm -hmm. or something like that. You have to compare it to what was the size of the economy then? So I did that. what, what, What was the net wealth out there? What proportion of wealth did that represent? Yeah. So you hit on something to get the real size of what Rockefeller So is had. that, so the other calculation I did besides just inflation was percent of GDP. So yes. Rockefeller was something like 2.4% of US GDP, which is just stunning. He was 2.4% of the whole country's GDP. Uh, and in that instance, comparatively, I think 
but Musk and Bezos are sort of a, a fraction of yeah. what he was. Um, but I was also, I couldn't find the money supply number. I was trying to find, you know, what was the money supply in 1913? Because that would be another one that I bet would make Rockefeller look even more beyond what these guys are today. Yeah, and there are two, two measures you should look for. And I think uh, Milton Friedman in one of his book on uh, money supply, which is 900 or 1,000 pages, but yeah. anyway, you might be able to have it, find it in there. But two things you should look at. One is what they call the monetary base. That's the money the Fed uh, central bank actually controls consists of currency in circulation and bank reserves. And uh, today you'd have to ask, add those reverse repos. That is what mm. the Fed controls directly. Then you look at uh, what economists call M2. And this shows the f- how crazy all of this is. There are various mm-hmm. ways of measuring money supply. Mm-hmm. And so now the favorite one is M2, which includes checking accounts, money market funds, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, the Fed doesn't control that directly. If, mm-hmm. if banks aren't lending, the money supply doesn't grow mm-hmm. the way they measure money. So uh, uh, get the M2, get the... Uh, get it's interesting, because if you, if you factor in these other things, it it's a radical difference in comparing Rockefeller to an Elon Musk. It, yeah. If you just do inflation, Musk is like well, 5x one, 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 of Rockefeller. But if you do the other, Rockefeller's 5x Musk, maybe more. And and that also shows the vast wealth creation that's happened in this country and mm-hmm. much of the world in the last 110 years. That today you have numerous baby Rockefellers out there. Right. You didn't have so many back then. And mm-hmm. uh, what it took to be rich back then was not quite the same. So uh, just uh, for offhand, if somebody was a millionaire then, you could call them a billionaire today, even though if you take the CPI, it wouldn't match that. But in comparison to the wealth out there, the size of the economy, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that was a huge amount of money. Yeah. It's interesting. It's like trying to compare you know, Kobe Bryant to Oscar Robertson. It's, uh, oh, it's hard wow. to do these guys from different eras. You know, we can all, we can sort of have some well, fun imagine, uh, speculating. Well, imagine what, what but... Babe Ruth's statistics would be if oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. he didn't have six or seven years of uh, the uh, uh, ball that uh, did not have the kind of a uh, boost that it has today. In mm-hmm. the dead, what they call now the dead ball. Yeah, live or ball would be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I want to return to the, the gold standard um, a bit. I had, I had some questions for you on sure. that. So. You actually discussed this in the book, too, but I wonder. I just want to ask you here as well. We, I think we have in America, in reserve, something like $500 billion in gold at current market values. Roughly, yeah. Um, but Which is you know less than the money supply that, that's out there. What, but it, but the, the gold standard, you feel, would be a great way for us to go in terms of stabilizing our currency. Yes, and uh, it's not the amount of gold you own. Gold is a, again, keeps its intrinsic value better than anything else in the mm-hmm. last 4,000 years, better than silver, better than copper, whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, not perfect, but it's the best we have. Mm-hmm. So what you do is you tie your currency to uh, to gold, not in the sense it backed one for one. Mm-hmm. It just means that the price of gold is constant. Uh, when you see the price change, that's not the value of gold changing, that's the value of the currency changing, the value of the dollar changing. So if you fix it, it means the dollar has a fairly steady value. And it doesn't restrict money supply. Uh, Between 1775, when we're a bunch of small colonies striving for independence and the Atlantic seaboard, to 1900, when we're the greatest industrial nation in the world, 
the money supply increased 160-fold. The amount of gold will increase threefold. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't restrict it any more than having 12 inches in a foot. It doesn't restrict the size of a building. Mm-hmm. It just means you have a constant measure of value. So it's about value. So you could do it with 100 ounces of gold, uh, 10 million ounces. The key thing is if the price of gold is going up, yeah. means probably you're uh, too loose. If mm-hmm. it's going down, you're probably being too tight. So it's a way of uh, keeping the steady value. But it also means you can't play games with uh, with money as these people today think we can juice up the economy, right. make things grow faster if we play games. No. Uh, no, that, that just feels like a Jenga puzzle. You know, you pull one little thing here and it's, oh, I didn't mean for all that to happen. Yeah, whack-a-mole. Yeah. And uh, I'll just give you one statistic. Uh, from the end of World War II, late 40s, when we went back on a gold system, it was called Bretton Woods. Mm-hmm. And uh, till uh, the 70s, when we blew the system up, average growth rate in the U.S. was over 4%. 4.2%. Since then, it's gone down to 27 doesn't sound like much, but you compound that over 50 years, devastating. Household median income today is about 70000 If we'd mm-hmm. maintain the average growth that we had post that World War II period or for 180 years from when Alexander Hamilton gave us the system back in the 1790s, if we'd maintain that average growth rate, mm-hmm. median household income today would be 110000 115000 Now, don't you think people would be happier yeah. with 40000 extra dollars annual income today? Mm-hmm. That's the price when you start to muck around with money. You know, it's interesting you point out in the book as well that we are, our psyche has developed to just expect inflation inflation happening every a couple percent maybe if we're lucky it could be more it could be a little less but as you point out left you know all else being equal prices should be going down every year as our technology develops as we as we become more efficient our distribution improves we should be producing goods more cheaply you know it should be going the other way and yet we have just gotten used to a bit of inflation every year well and uh this idea that inflation is good for the economy if there's not too much of it is preposterous. They all say, well, we want to get the rate down to 2%. Why? Why mm-hmm. two? They picked it out of thin air. Came out of New Zealand Central Bank. Picked out of thin air. Oh, well, that sounds okay. And no science behind it. And so what's 2% of 70000 a year? So you're, in fact, taxing people fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars $1,500 a year, and that's supposed to be good? Mm-hmm. Uh, explain that. Yeah, and, I guess the, the only good news you point out is that the stock market over time has outpaced inflation, at least. So you're you're not going underwater if you're if you're invested well. But you do have to buy uh, necessities, and and the other thing is that uh, when you have a, a vibrant economy over time, not only do uh, certain products go down, but you're creating new kinds of products. I mean, mm-hmm. today you could not live without a handheld. Right. 30 years ago, imagine 30 or 40 years ago bringing back somebody from the dead and trying to explain the Internet. You could not do it. They wouldn't have an f- idea what in the world are you talking about. Right. And yet uh, in our hands, we have the equivalent of a supercomputer today, mm-hmm. which didn't exist 20 years no, so ago. It, took up room. it does more than what previously took up rooms of... Yeah. You, you, earlier you mentioned the intrinsic value of gold, and I, I have... Kind of a silly question no. for no. you on this because I've never understood the intrinsic value of gold. It's a soft metal. You can't build a bridge with it. You can't build a skyscraper with it. It's soft, so I guess you can make jewelry. Uh, maybe you can use it in electronics, but that doesn't explain why anyone <sighs> valued it a thousand years ago. I just I don't understand why it's valuable, and yet 
civilizations for thousands of years all over the world have valued it. But what is the intrinsic value of gold? It's the fact that uh, what it takes to mine gold. It's an attractive thing. And uh, uh, because it's not easy to mine, therefore you. But why are we rare. even mining it? Like, who cares about gold? We don't mine dirt. <laughs> uh, because uh, because of uh, its rarity, its beauty, mm-hmm. and uh, also it's hard to mine. So one every one every ounce of gold that's been mined is still with us. You cannot destroy it. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, you cannot increase the. It's not like a corn where you can have a drought or something to affect the annual supply, so you don't get supply side shocks. It also uh, uh, only grows on average one to two percent a year. So you're not that's how much flood. is mined around the world. Each <clears throat> yeah. Year. yeah, and the biggest jump was the uh, uh, eighteen forty nine. Uh, California gold rush, mm-hmm. where it went up in 5%. And South Africa, where your grandfather was, was a, a big bump as well. Right? Yes, in the 1890s. But uh, nothing that really disturbs the uh, what people are willing to uh, get for it. Well, speaking of mining, what about crypto? I, I uh, You write in the book that crypto could be an accessible, uh, an acceptable sort of payment system, but not a currency. It's just too volatile and unstable. But are you a believer in the future of crypto as a, an integral part of the economy? Well, crypto, uh, Bitcoin, was invented as a high-tech cry for help against the depredations of government and also a way of preserving privacy. You can send money to Venezuela and the government doesn't know it. And, uh, but it's, uh, and because they put a limit on the number of bitcoins, I think it's 21 million or whatever it is, mm-hmm. they figured that rarity would give it a value, a store of value. They love to use the word store of value. Well, uh, what makes something valuable is what people think is valuable or accept as valuable. And the problem with bitcoin and all these, uh, there are now at least 10,000 active cryptos, 20,000 have been created various coins, but 10,000 are still considered somewhat alive, mm-hmm. maybe less now. But uh, they fluctuate in value, and that's not money. Mm-hmm. They, they, their very behavior is what you don't like about the money we have today. You would never do a mortgage in Bitcoin, because you wouldn't know if you took, say, a $300,000 mortgage, you might in five years owe the bank $13 million, $20 million. So you wouldn't use a law as a long-term contract. Mm-hmm. You can use it for a quick buy now if a seller has the technology, but the seller immediately turns it into cash or keeps it as a speculation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the real class of cryptos that could challenge government monopoly of money are what they call the stable coins. But there you have the problem of tra- transparency and believability. Mm-hmm. Do, do they really have the assets they say? Who, who, who's the trustee of those assets? And uh, where are they stored? And so uh, they and have- that trust has just taken a big blow. It's taken a big blow, because it was all blowhard. Yeah. A lot of it was blowhard. So, uh, but eventually, eventually, uh, they'll come along with some uh, stable coins that are uh, trustworthy, you know, uh, who's custodian of, of, of the assets. You, know, you can see mm-hmm. it. Uh, easy to use for transactions that could challenge yeah. A government monopoly, and the government is going to go. Governments are going to go bonkers to try to suppress that. They don't want to lose their monopoly of money. Mm-hmm. But if you and I agree that we want to use uh, uh, the Doug coin, uh, 
because it's a stable in value. You've tied it to gold or the Swiss franc. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could do it. Yeah, I guess it really comes down to trust because it all is a fiction. I mean, even even gold, I kind of maintain is you know oil. I get it. Like you can do something with oil, and it has a value and you know an intrinsic value there. Oil's bulky. Right. Well, yeah, so you couldn't use it in this instance. But if you can establish trust around a value of something, it's all... Like the Malcolm Gladwell, I can't remember which book of his, was basically saying all of these things are a fiction. Like America is a fiction. The concept of America is a story we tell ourselves, and we all believe in it. We're willing to die for it. Um, and well, But once because, we all believe in it, it becomes a thing. And the, and the same with gold or crypto. But, but, once we but trust he, it. But uh, he, he, in that instance, uh, overlooks the fact that what do the beliefs lead to? The belief. One of the reasons you should ask. We should ask ourselves why, in the last 220 years, 250 years, did the human condition improve 30 to 50 fold? Throughout history, yeah, advances were made and this and that, but the human condition for most of the population was pretty miserable. You lived on the equivalent of three dollars a day in today's money. Imagine surviving today on three dollars a day, mm-hmm. three bucks. Uh, pretty, pretty hard, harsh life. What changed? One of the things that changed was the belief in the individual, individual rights, breaking caste systems, and uh, that uh, you could make, as uh, the historian Deidre McCloskey says, make a go of it. And so uh, in England, where you didn't have an oppressive monarchy by the standards of the time, uh, the Dutch before that, northern Italian bankers before that, the idea of the individual being key Mm-hmm. Uh, grew, and that's what made it work. Capital has been around forever, mm-hmm. and uh, so the idea that you could tap into the talents and develop the talents of everyone—that mm-hmm. uh, was what uh, led to this blossoming. Because things happen. You know, it's not like you know, China invented a lot of stuff, but they never had the belief system, so to speak, the belief in the hu- human individual mm-hmm. that enabled that to be uh, uh, mass-produced improved constantly, learning curve. Mm-hmm. It was just a curiosity. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, that's what uh, the system of belief is, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that allows the human condition to flourish. And most systems in the past didn't allow for that kind of flourishing. Well, it's interesting. And the, and the lessons are right before us. And as you point out, have you know positive and negative examples. You know, we, we sort of mentioned the, the emperors of Rome and Nixon failing, but you have positive examples in there too. I think of Joseph Dodge solving hyperinflation in Germany and Japan in post-World War II by going pro-market policies, reduced taxes, and stabilizing the money supply. And, uh, and, and uh, we'll get to the money supply in a moment, but uh, what Dodge and uh, the local officials did was uh, Germany, Germany had a hyperinflation. Nobody used the currency. Cigarettes were the real currency in post-war Germany, and uh, and so uh, what what happened was nothing was happening. It was all rationing, shortages everywhere, and uh, Ludwig Erhard was uh, the sort of the economics minister of the uh, Allied zones of occupation, and uh, he decided that uh, with uh, seeing what Dodge was doing, he decided overnight they were going to get rid of all the rationing. Mm-hmm. And bring in the new currency called the Deutschmark, and uh, the uh, U.S. occupation authorities uh, went to him and said, uh, first, our experts say this is not going to work." And Earhart said, "Don't worry, my experts tell me the same thing. Uh, it won't work, but we're going to do it." 
And he said these pieces of paper called Deutschmarks are going to replace those rationing books. Rationing means less. This is going to mean more. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, you, you can't throw the rationing system. You don't have the authority. He said, I know. I don't have the authority to make changes. That's why I'm throwing it all out at once. So, yeah, you're right on the legalism. That's why mm-hmm. we're getting rid of it. And Germany overnight, within months, the stores started to fill up. And the so-called mm-hmm. German miracle began. Japan, each year, they would cut tax rates. Germany would cut tax rates. And they did it in Japan, even after they exceeded pre-war levels of production for years, grew at 8 to 10% in real terms. And then the amazing thing is, they all forgot what made it happen. Right. And uh, I love it when Bernie Sanders, when he ran for president, oh, look at Scandinavia, look at Sweden. Well, Sweden got wealthy with low taxes, free markets, and they were so rich, relatively, they decided to put an elaborate welfare state, which just almost destroyed the country in the 70s. That's mm-hmm. why Sweden today does not have an inheritance tax. They have school choice, among other things, that Bernie would not like to hear about. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they, they had to go in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And so Japan has gone from being relentlessly tax cutters to uh, finding ways to keep increasing taxes. Yeah. You know, these terrible cycles of doing the hard work, making a positive difference, getting things really flourishing, and then forgetting, and falling, like it happens in policing. All the hard work that Bratton and Kelly did well, decades ago has just that's, been... That's so inexcusable. So, I mean, and, the, you know, it takes decades window, to build it, and it takes a day to just destroy it. broken window theory, mm-hmm. which worked when people thought it was crime was hopeless, like inflation was hopeless. Mm-hmm. No. Do the right thing, and small leads to big results, mm-hmm. as what Wilson and others, uh, James Q. Wilson and others, said and Bratton and uh, mm-hmm. put in practice, first in the subways and then with the city as a whole. But they, they, they. It's maddening it. to watch this cycle play out. You feel like is anyone paying attention to common and, sense and here? Why? We've, we've seen this before. You don't even have to go back too many decades. You know, just go back a little bit. Um, so. At the end of the show, I like to do a segment of a lightning round of fun questions. But before I get into that, uh, in my research, I uncovered uh, an interesting tidbit. Your 1970 Princeton senior thesis uh, uh, yes. <laughs> was, uh, was on the 1892 presidential Democratic primary, uh, which was won by Grover Cleveland. And uh, this set up a rematch for him with President Benjamin Harrison. And he had lost to Harrison back in 88. And, of course, Cleveland had been... Uh, running as the incumbent. He was president from 84 to 88, yes. lost his re-election bid, and then ran again in 92. So this uh, has a strange similarity to the present day, because when Cleveland did win the rematch with Harrison, be- he became the first and to date only two-term non-consecutive exactly. president. So we uh, we find ourselves in a situation where uh, all these dynamics are coming together again. But why did you pick the 1892 primary? What was it about that election that you chose it for your senior thesis? Uh, one, because even back when dinosaurs were roaming the earth in the 1960s, it never happened again. And how did it happen? If you've lost in a race for president, it usually tars you forever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also it was a time of enormous change in the U.S., uh, The 1890s were probably the time when people really questioned where this country was going, really had doubts about the future. And uh, 1892 started to reflect that, the rise of the populist movement and the distressed farm belt. You had a populist party then, Mm -hmm. very, very powerful. 
and uh, and so uh, it was a unique period. And then how did Cleveland pull it off? And four years later, he couldn't have he he, he could not have been renominated even if he wanted to. His party rejected him, mm-hmm. spat him out, went to William Jennings Bryan and uh, inflation. And mm-hmm. uh, but in the 1890s. For, you had the rise of large corporations, which people thought as a threat to small town values. You had massive immigration from southern central Europe. Could we absorb these people coming in? One thing from Germany or England or something, but these places, ooh, ooh. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wondered about that. Uh, there was a hard economic times because of uncertainty whether the U.S. was going to maintain a gold standard. Uh, you had uh, uh, the a big thing that really sh- shook the nation when it was publicized was a, a professor at the University of Wisconsin named Frederick Jackson Turner was looking at uh, the report about the 1890 census. And the 1890 census announced the closing of the American frontier. The big free land days were over. Mm-hmm. We are now like every other nation. We didn't have all this unused land. And... Uh, People wonder what made America unique was that if you weren't satisfied with what you were, you went out and pioneered, and this is what made us different. We're now going to become just like Europe. Mm-hmm. What made us unique, talking about what made America unique, frontier closing. Where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. And so you had massive industrialization, people fearing life was out of their control, immigration, mm-hmm. uh, and then we went uh, It's fascinating it. how many similar themes, you know, to the yeah. present day. and and and... Uh, it was soon discovered uh, the real frontier is the mind, not uh, mm-hmm. physical land, and uh, we got through it. But a profound uh, psychological crisis in the 1890s about the very essence of uh, the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, could, could, it, could it's we, amazing because there, there's so many hysterics, particularly in the media, who mm-hmm. who talk about end of days things, and you know it's never been as bad as this. And really, you just need to study a bit of history to recognize. You need perspective if that's the kind of thing you're talking about now, because, you know, as bad as race issues and divisiveness has have been over the past few years, not as bad as the 1960s race riots, I don't think. And talking or about national World security, War, or after World War One, we had devastating riots: Tulsa, mm-hmm. Chicago, you know, scores, hundreds of people killed. And, and in terms of national security, you know, nowhere near as bad as World War Two, the Berlin Airlift, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, I it's it's. Uh, Studying history is a very positive thing to, to develop some perspective and on. And if anyone says uh, uh, the past was better, just say dentistry. <laughs> right. <laughs> that has improved. In fact, I just had a silver <laughs> filling break, and they, they took that out. My dad had a mouthful of gold fillings yeah. from way back in the day. So, Okay, I'm going to have another sip of Pilsner here, and uh, we'll go into the lightning round, which is just sort of fun, hopefully not stupid questions. Your favorite book as a kid? Favorite book as a kid would have been uh, The Engine That Could. Oh, that's a classic. I love that. Um, those kid books are just... I, you know, I need to write a children's book. That's what I should write next because it's just... It, you sell another Golden books were batch of them every wonder, year. Wonderful. A new, new batch of babies. Yes. Every year to sell to. Um, this next question, I wanted to get your thoughts on the best business leader or CEO. Occasionally, decades come along and there's sort of a cult of personality on a particular CEO like Jack Welsh or Lee Iacocca or something like that. And I wanted to ask it in two parts. Uh, one business leader, you know, in, in the idea that there are certain leaders who are best in a crisis, like a wartime leader, like a Churchill, who can make swift, decisive, bold decisions. 
and a business leader who's more the peacetime leader who's making consensus building and measured and slow growth over a long time kind of a, a leader. Um, so in, in the decades you've seen, who, who's your best well, business in ter- CEO ter- crisis ter- in terms of uh, responding to a crisis, uh, one you have to look at is Henry Kaiser. Henry Kaiser uh, was uh, early part of the 1900s, was in construction, road building, bridges and the like, the big dams. He was part of the consortium that did that. And uh, in World War II, uh, suddenly we needed shipping. Freight, freighters took months to build. And uh, Henry Kaiser, who knew nothing about shipbuilding, just regular construction, big dams and the like, decided he was going to go in the shipbuilding business and mm. radically change the way ships were put together. And instead of months or even years, he could do it in a few weeks. And uh, they were called Liberty Ships. Very basic, but over 3,000 were produced in World War II. It enabled us to supply ourselves, the Brits, the Russians, in terms of wartime material. From a guy who did not know anything about shipbuilding, mm-hmm. uh, coming in, seeing it with different eyes, meeting a crisis. He, uh, That's he, ama- I don't even know the name. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go find a book on this guy. It, it, it's amazing. And uh, his vision, uh, the story is he went out to California and uh, had some Brits with him, and he was building a factory, I think, for uh, parts for uh, aircraft. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, let me show you uh, this great facility. And all it was was marshland. And they said, what are you talking about? And he said, in a few weeks, come back and see what we're doing. And he did it. Wow. Liberty ships, amazing. He did numerous other things, Kaiser Permanente and other things. But okay. uh, the shipbuilding. One who did great things in peacetime, <clears throat> Uh, was a fellow named A.P. Giannini. Uh, Giannini was the son of Italian immigrants in Northern California, 1890s, and uh, went into a stepfather's uh, fruit brokerage business, uh, did extremely well. His wife, uh, family, owned a bank. He was on the board. And he asked the bank, he said, instead of just lending as banks did in those days, just to well-to-do people, big loans to well-to-do people, he said, why don't we serve this massive immigrant immigrant community coming into California? And they said, are you out of your mind? Uh, we don't know these people. They don't have no credit record. What are you mm-hmm. talking about? This sounds like George Bailey from A Wonderful Life. And so uh, Giannini left the bank, started his own bank. The name was the Bank of Italy. And he made loans, small loans at reasonable interest rates, started really consumer banking. Mm-hmm. He did, he did other bad things in the eyes of bankers. He advertised, which you weren't supposed to. He, in various languages, Greek mm-hmm. or whatever, these immigrant communities, served, made, made, served their needs, made loans for housing, consumer items, and the like. And he went into branch banking, which you weren't supposed to do. Then he went into Los Angeles and established there, had a very hard fight there. He bought a small bank there that he uh, merged into Bank of Italy. The small bank he acquired was called Bank of America and uh, changed the name of his bank to Bank of America. Okay, wow. All and, right, well, there's there's two biographies I'm going to be on the hunt for. Thank and, you for and, that. And to finish the story on that, he, uh, he uh, created the biggest bank in the world. He financed the Hollywood, the early movie industry, Columbia, Fox, MGM were all financed by his loans. He saved Disney from bankruptcy in the 30s when he made Snow White and nearly destroyed the company financially. Gene, mm-hmm. and he kept him alive. 
He bought the whole bond issue when the bank was in real trouble during the Depression that enabled the building of the Golden Gate Bridge. And talking about crisis, back in 1906, San Francisco was hit by the earthquake. That's where his headquarters were. And uh, he had the presence of mind to realize that when the tremors stopped, the city was going to burn. And so he brought some wagons up to his bank, took out the cash and the gold. That's You had physical money then. Mm-hmm. Put them on the wagons, covered them up with fruit, went outside the city, city burned. And he realized that with the fires, bank vaults would be melted and banks would not be able to get a hold of their records or their money. Oh, my gosh. Until the, the, you know, months later. So the, tr- the fires start to abate. Goes with the wagons, goes on to the pier, San Francisco, sets up some uh, tables, puts money on the table and says, we're going to lend and rebuild this city. This is cinematic. This should be a movie. Uh, imagine an earthquake, having mm-hmm. the presence of mind to see what's going to happen afterwards. And he was the spur for the rebuilding of San Francisco. Put the money out, merchant, come along, we're going to make loans and start this thing. Oh, that's an amazing story. I, I'm going to find there, there must be biographies on yes. both of these guys. I'm going to get that. Uh, book you're reading now? Uh, book I'm reading now. Um, well, one is uh, just finishing up Michael Connolly's new book. Mm. Uh, another that uh, I'm uh, uh, starting to read is about a fellow named Edward Gray. Biography was British foreign minister. Oh right, during World War One, World yeah. War One, before yeah. World War One, and uh, his historical reputation took a real hit because the war happened. Right, and uh, so I want to learn more about uh, uh, his life. He was a popular figure up until that time. I think he was sort of uh, more anti-German. I think really in his view. Well, right? he was very pro-French. Yeah, and I'm reading simultaneously a biography of a fellow named Lord Lansdowne. Mm-hmm who uh, was foreign minister in the early 1900s, the conservative government. He's the one who began mm-hmm. the uh, detente with France and mm-hmm. with Russia. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So you're, you're Michael Connolly to, to World War One-era British uh, ministers. Um, which foreign economy will surprise us to the upside over the next 10 to 20 years? Which I guess is another way of asking who's stabilizing their currency and doing pro-market policies. Well, the nice thing about... Uh, that whole field is that any country can do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, turn themselves, well, take classic example of South Korea. In the 1950s, South Korea was one of the poorest nations on earth, less than $50 of income a year. Devastating war and uh, going nowhere. And uh, everyone at the time, North Korea was sort of seen as the uh, industrial, more you know, Prussian-esque kind of uh, go-to-it part of the peninsula. And then uh, in the early 60s, a group of Koreans came together and said, we got to move ahead. They looked Mm -hmm. at what the Japanese were doing, and they just did it. And uh, the mayor of of, uh, Seoul once described how, when he was working, I think, for Hyundai, how uh, first they decided they are going to go in the shipbuilding business. They knew nothing about ships. And within a few years, they were beating the Norwegians and the Japanese. Hmm. Then they decided to do automobiles. There was no automobile making for dummies. They just learned it the hard way. And some of their early models were not so good. Just the early Japanese models were not so good. So uh, which, which, which country will uh, 
emerged to do it. If I knew, I would uh, be uh, investing so I could finally get on the Forbes 400 rich list. But uh, so I don't know. But I do know that out there, somebody's going to do it. Britain was a second tier country in the 1690s when King William took over, Prince of Orange, Mm -hmm. and Britain made changes and became a great power. Holland, the Dutch, Mm -hmm. the 1500s, part of the Habsburg Empire, literally underwater. Uh, right. Uh, I just got back from Amsterdam looking at the canals. They're pumping all that water out. It's amazing. Uh, so uh, they've been underwater for 500 years and yep. done very nicely. So those who think the world is coming to an end, don't worry. It isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the they, Dutch— You learned all about their, their system of, you know, as you say, back in the 16th century, they were using these mills to pump water and, you know, reclaim land from what is a couple feet below sea level. It's amazing. And so uh, this small republic— managed to not only eventually get independence from the Spanish, but uh, literally create a global empire. Mm-hmm. Amsterdam became the global center of the capital center of the world because mm-hmm. they had sound money, among other things. Right. Uh, so you may have a similar answer to this next one. Which, which American city is the most undervalued in terms of its real estate? Or do you think it's a good buy around the country? Uh, well, you'd have to look at the ones that are doing the best to destroy it today, uh, like Portland. <laughs> Is there any hope for Portland? <laughs> right, right now you'd want to sell it short, uh, what they've done to destroy that city. Mm. And uh, so uh, you'd look at one that's uh, down and mm. uh, decide to bring themselves up. I'll give you an example of a state in the Midwest, Indiana. Uh, a lot of manufacturing same problem as Ohio and Illinois, you know, industries that had seen better days. And starting with Mitch Daniels as governor, with sound finance, sound tax policy, uh, Indiana became a state that attracted population instead of repelling it mm-hmm. in the last 20 years. Uh, so even a state with, and it didn't, they didn't have oil fields or something that uh, would give them a boom. They did it through the sheer old way of uh, create a good environment, create good conditions, mm-hmm. and uh, by golly, it's amazing what will what will, yeah. will emerge. Host a few Final Fours for the, N- for the NCAA, too. That, that never hurts <laughs> over there in Indianapolis. Uh, who will emerge to represent the Republican and Democratic parties and duke it out for the, uh, for the presidency in 2024? Yeah, that's another one where I'd go to Vegas if I knew the answer. Um, Biden won't run in 24. I don't know if he's even going to be in office in 24. Uh, fate may. Not, mm-hmm. I don't mean mortal. I mean just his condition right. deteriorating, sadly. Um, uh, so on, on the Democratic side, you'd have to say if it's not Biden, I don't think they would, re, they would nominate uh, Kamala. I think that uh, they might go for a total outsider. Uh, like the Republicans did in 2016. Someone out of politics, so not Gavin Newsom, someone from out of politics. Yeah. And on the Republican mm-hmm. side, it'll, if it's not, uh, if it's not uh, one of the governors that uh, like DeSantis or Yunkin in uh, Virginia, maybe an outsider. But I think uh, people, are, at least on the Republican side, want a record. Who has the background? Who has delivered? And so, one thing, so not Trump? No. Will not be Trump? Uh, I say I won't bet a penny of my 401k on it uh, just because the last uh, 15 years 
should make any everyone humble about predicting, predicting right. politics, not to mention the economy. Mm-hmm. And uh, there will be somebody out there who will see an opportunity and move with it. One of the things that often happens in uh, you see it in politics, people miss time. Um, for example, Bill Bradley, great uh, basketball player, great uh, Princeton scholar, Princeton, yeah. Rhodes scholar. New US, Jersey governor or something? What was he? U- U.S. Senator? senator. Senator from New Jersey, right? People all thought, well, ideal presidential candidate. He didn't feel he was ready in 88 or 92, which mm-hmm. gave the opening for Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. If he had run, he probably would have been the nominee. Mm. Could have won. Uh, another, Christie, Chris Christie in Chris 12. Chris Christie in 2012. Yeah. He felt it wasn't time, the right time. Everyone was asking right. him to do it, and he said, no, not this year. And, and then, then they, when then he ran, it was the, the Everybody train. hated him by the time he ran in 16. The, the, the train had left the station. Yeah. So you have to go when, uh, and one who did go ahead of schedule, seemingly, was Obama. Gave that great speech, excited the Democrats in right. 2004, and people said, boy, this guy could be a vice presidential candidate mm-hmm. and maybe, maybe even run for president someday. Four years later, he goes, or three years later, he goes for the big one mm-hmm. and makes it. And uh, that, because that was, he had enough sense or instincts to realize it was then or never. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so you have to you have to do it. And this goes back to ancient times. Uh, when I did this book with uh, John Previs, who wrote the story about of uh, Xenophon, mm-hmm. who was a Greek aristocrat from Athens. And at the time, Athens and uh, and uh, the other Greek states were at each other's throats. And uh, so he decided to go with a group of mercenaries uh, to fight in uh, as a lark in one of these uh, succession wars in the uh, Persian Empire. Mm-hmm. They picked the wrong brother, and uh, so uh, they sent emissaries to the winning brother and say, all right, what do we do to negotiate? What do we have to pay? How do we get out? They said, no, they killed them. One of the negotiators survived and got back, and uh, they all, the the Spartans, well, they're mostly Spartan mercenaries, mm-hmm. and they all thought, well, this is the end. We're 10,000. They have an army of a million. We're in the middle of nowhere. And uh, Xenophon, no formal military training, just the fighting he'd done with these Spartan uh, uh, mercenaries, gets up and makes a rousing speech. We can get through it. Here's how we can do it. And the circumstance was such that it was that or or, or die. Mm -hmm. And he had enough sense to realize that being an Athenian, an aristocrat to boot, he had to be very careful because if you made it in those, with that army, all the troops had to approve, the office had to approve of every order. Mm -hmm. So they'd have assemblies. If they didn't like your order, you didn't get a pension. You got stoned to death. And so uh, utterly unanticipated, no desire to have a career as a as a military leader, did it as a lar- youthful lark to go off in this war, and uh, leads a Spartan army, and they make it through, and uh, no good deed goes unpunished. Mm-hmm. Uh, he makes it through and learns as soon as he does, he reaches the shores of the Mediterranean, that he's been exiled from Athens. The last thing they wanted was an experienced uh, general coming back. So he's exiled mm-hmm. to Sparta, and the king of Sparta gave him some farmland, and uh, Xenophon wrote uh, histories that uh, historians base a lot of their knowledge of the ancient world and the stuff he wrote as an exile in Sparta. But that it gets back to the point, 
of sometimes things rise up, and even mm-hmm. though you know you're not fully prepared, you mm-hmm. have to take the leap and hope uh, you're going to land yeah. on your feet. Well, it'd be interesting to see if it's someone we're not really talking about much yet, but the clock's exactly. ticking. We only got a couple years to uh, for that person to, you know, get on stage. Uh, last question. One piece of good advice for the listeners on any topic. Um, in every issue of Forbes uh, editorial page called Fact and Comment, we have... Uh, a saying from Proverbs, which is, with all thy getting, get understanding. I love that. I love that. Steve, what a pleasure. Thank you for coming in. Look, thank you. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.